0: hello everyone welcome to back from the borderline where we walk willingly into the darkness within our minds and return home to ourselves transformed this podcast is a soul expanding and trauma informed offering serving up all things self-awareness and spirituality for those who've been diagnosed with or relate to symptomology of bpd eupd or cptsd Today we're going to be talking about emotional overcontrol. People who tend to feel like they are overcontrolled personalities may refer to themselves as sensitive on the inside but tough on the outside. Emotional overcontrol and fear of losing control is caused by a combination of our bio temperament, our upbringing, and cultural and systemic factors. And as we'll discuss in this episode, sometimes being emotionally overcontrolled is something that can help you do well in the world. But as with anything else, in the extreme, being overcontrolled isn't sustainable and can cause us to feel increasingly alone and unfulfilled in life. Now, being emotionally overcontrolled and having an over-controlled personality is different from being controlling. Overcontrol concerns self-control and does not necessarily mean you want to control other people. What we're talking about today is a coping style that's characterized by excessive concern about inhibiting your emotional expressions and behaviors. When you have a severe fear of losing control, you might become perfectionistic, rigid, emotionally inhibited, and extremely critical of yourself and other people. If you have an emotionally over-controlled temperament, you also may be really hard on yourself, thinking of yourself as lazy and not deserving of love or even life. But in other people's eyes, you seem extremely disciplined, diligent, hardworking, and high-functioning. Clinical psychologist Dr. Thomas Lynch and his team are amongst the most prominent teachers who have studied emotional overcontrol tendency. They founded Radically Open Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, also known as RODBT, which is an evidence-based treatment protocol for people who struggle with emotional overcontrol. Today, we're going to be speaking with Larry Dahmer, a Psychological Associate at Health Sciences North in Sudbury, Ontario. He specializes in radically open DBT. It was an incredible honor to speak with Larry, and I'm so excited for you to hear our conversation because this treatment modality is brand new. So this information that you'll be hearing on this podcast today is something that many practicing mental health professionals are potentially unaware of. Which is why I'm beyond honored that Larry agreed to speak with me today. I was actually referred to Larry by Dr. Anita Federici, who was a guest on a past episode, and Larry and Anita are working very closely with other professionals in their field to make sure that this information gets out to as many people and professionals as possible. The lack of understanding around the concepts of emotional over control and under control are why so many people are misdiagnosed with BPD. This is also why some people end up in traditional dialectical behavior therapy, which is aimed at people who struggle with emotional under control, And they may end up in these environments in dbt groups and find that it is not helpful for them so it's my hope that by listening to this interview with larry will help in two ways one by helping my listeners out there who are not mental health practitioners who are just out there being your own best advocates and trying to find the best therapists and treatment modalities for you i wanted to help you But I also know that there are licensed and practicing mental health practitioners that tune into this podcast and recommend it to their clients. I'm so excited for you to be exposed to this new information and research that's being done by incredible people like Larry and his colleagues. As you all know, I'm so passionate about this stuff. I think that there is an incredible change and wave of change happening in the mental health field, and I really believe that the concepts of biotemperament, emotional over control and under control, and other trauma informed treatment modalities, all of this is going to change the way that we look at mental health in the coming years. Larry is such a gem, and we talked for such a long time that I almost considered making half of this episode available for the public feed and then fading out and making the last half of the conversation available to my premium subscribers but i believe that this information is so important that i'm just going to release this episode in full and for my premium subscribers the episode that will be dropping later this week we are going to be diving deep into rodbt i found some skills PDFs and workbooks and exercises that we're going to be diving extra deep. So if you love this episode and you want to learn more about RODBT, I'm going to do my very best with my nerdy little self and find all the information I can so that we can dive even further into the concept of radical openness and how we can incorporate that into our life. So if you would like to have access to that episode, go ahead and go to backfromtheborderline.com and become a premium subscriber. Now before we dive into my interview with Larry, I'm going to play some listener questions and responses. If you would like to call in to the podcast and hear your voice, you can go to backfromtheborderline.com slash voicemail. Remember that my premium subscribers get their voicemails prioritized first, but I wanted to take the first part of today's episode like we've been doing the last few weeks and play some voicemails from the lovely listeners of the podcast so we can develop this thriving community feel that we've been having but if you are happening upon this episode and it is the first time you're listening to back from the borderline and you want to dive straight in to my interview with larry and skip the listener questions just go ahead and skip over to minute 27 which is right about when my interview with larry begins our first voicemail is from a listener named Stephanie and what I love about this one is that it is a response to another listener who called in a couple of weeks ago. Don't forget that you don't have to just call in and ask something of me or share love for the podcast, you can respond to another listener. This is a sense of community that I just adore creating so Let's hear Stephanie's response to Rosa.
1: Hey, Molly. My name is Stephanie. I'm 31, and I am in the mountains of North Carolina. I wanted to respond to Rosa's message or her audio that she sent in just to hopefully encourage and validate her and others who may be experiencing the same thing. I know that I have and still do experience that as well. And I just wanted to talk for a little bit about scarcity mentality and how, I don't know Joseph's story or anybody else listening, but I feel like I was supposed to call in and say this. And so when we are starved of something, our brains are wired for survival. So when we're starved of something that we need, it makes sense that we're not going to be able to focus on anything else, right? And so... We need connection with other people. When we have been emotionally starved, it makes sense that we feel like nothing our partner gives us is ever enough. And I just hope this helps Rosa and other listeners to have some compassion for themselves and for others because it makes sense.
0: You make sense. Mm, What a beautiful voicemail. Thank you so much for doing that, Stephanie. And so much of what you said, I thought, is just such incredible and beautiful advice for anybody that has been emotionally or spiritually starved. For so many of us who grew up in emotionally neglectful environments when our caregivers did not see us and reflect our emotions back to us or even just well-meaning speaking our love language give us enough physical touch give us enough words of affirmation. I describe myself as someone who often feels like I'm in a desert like I'm thirsty so when <laughs> I describe my need for physical touch and affirmation from partners in the past, it's come across as so clingy and so intense that it can really put people off. And to Stephanie's point, self-compassion is the key here because only we can give ourselves that love and what we need. Only we know what we need. If we're expressing our need for connection in this really clinging and desperate way, it makes sense and it's okay that you feel that way. But we can't be surprised if the people in our lives and the people that love us feel almost overwhelmed and engulfed by that desperation, that air of desperation. So what's helped me is realizing that if I'm feeling that desperate need, that almost like urge to just yell at my partner and say, you never give me enough love, you never hold my hand first, etc., cetera, et cetera, that is a sure sign that we need to turn inwards and give ourselves a little bit of love first and get ourselves back in that window of tolerance that we talked about last episode and then approach our partner's and articulate our needs in a calm, centered, and grounded place with clear requests for them and not from a place of expressing a deficit of you never do this, you always do this. It's sometimes I feel so desperately in need for love and affection that I know that I can come across a little bit overwhelming for you. I'm gonna do my best to tell you what I need. So I need a hug right now. I'm feeling really overwhelmed. Can you just hug me for a minute? Can you sit here with me and just listen to me and just be here and hold my hand? Go to your partner and express your needs. In a calm way once you've given yourself a little bit of love gotten yourself back into your window of tolerance and go to them and tell them what you need but that requires you to go within and do some reflection first so thank you again stephanie for calling in i think that's so beautiful and i absolutely love that my listeners are starting to call in and support each other this just shows we're not alone there are other people just like you tuning in every single week and going through the same things. Part of what makes recovery from BPD, EUPD, CPTSD, all the Ds, (laughs) all this trauma is that we can convince ourselves that we're so desperately alone, but that's not the case. It can feel that way, but that's not the reality. Now let's check
2: out our next voicemail from Morgan. Hey Molly, this is Morgan from Maryland, and I'm 27 years old. I actually found your podcast right when it first started out um, because I had recently been diagnosed with BPD. I actually love that you had the Truth Doctor on your show because a post she made about BPD on Instagram I felt really connected with, and that's actually what led to me looking into it more and then bringing it up with my therapist. So shout out to Courtney. Um, I've always sort of felt like I didn't know what was going on with me, and I was never very good at explaining it to other people either. And even as I got my diagnosis and started to feel like I understood myself a little bit better, I still didn't feel like the people in my life got it. But listening to your podcast makes me feel connected to people who do get it and who look at life the same way I do and who have all these same like existential thoughts and and fears. And I don't feel so isolated knowing that other people are feeling this way too. I never really listened to podcasts before, but I'm really glad that I found yours. So thank you for helping me better understand myself and for giving me opportunities for self-growth and exploration. What you're doing matters and so do you. So thanks.
0: Well, thank you, Morgan. Ah, voicemails like this make me so happy and it carries on the point that we were talking about before, you are not alone. and I'm convinced that so many people struggle with these same existential questions, but it's much easier for them to pop up the existential thoughts, and most people just smash them back down. And for those of us who express them, when you express your existential thoughts and feelings to someone who is used to suppressing their own emotions 99% of the time, you're going to touch their edges. Right, You're going to touch their emotional hot buttons. And it's much easier to tell someone who's expressing these big, existential, huge feelings just shut them down or make them feel like something's wrong with them. I guarantee you, even if someone is making you feel stupid or ostracized for your existential thoughts, it's probably because you're touching their edges. And in those moments, it's easier for me now to feel such a deep compassion for that person because if anyone can understand how painfully lonely it can feel to go through something alone, it's us, people with big feelings. And now whenever I encounter someone who just seems to be very repressed in their reality and my big feelings seem too much to them and I watch them just kind of shut down, I think, wow, I know you have these feelings too, but... It seems like it's too much for you to go there. And I understand. But what's important about podcasts like this and voicemails from people like Morgan is this is our safe space together. You are not the only one having these big thoughts and these big feelings. And it's so important that we create spaces like this where you don't feel alone. So thank you, Morgan. And a huge shout out to Courtney, the Truth Doctor. She's a fabulous person. Follow her, The Truth Doctor, on Instagram. Our episode that we did is called Calling Bullshit on BPD Stigma. She's a great person and she has a really big platform. And she came on my podcast when I was just starting out. So she's a really great advocate. She is a practicing clinician that is open about her BPD diagnosis, which is very rare indeed. So check that out. And again, thanks, Morgan. Our next voicemail is from Elise.
3: Hi, Molly. My name is Elise, and I am calling from Minnesota. I just really wanted to let you know that your podcast has truly changed my life, and I think it's really funny how I stumbled upon it. I actually was in a really bad state of BPD, where I just felt like I couldn't connect with anything. I couldn't connect with anyone, so I went on Spotify and just looked up BPD playlist. Um, So, like, songs that really just... Connected with me, made me in my feels, made me feel worse. Actually, is what they do, but I, I used to do that quite often, and I kept scrolling to try and find a good playlist, and I found your podcast, and I found this about a month and a half ago, so I'm very fresh into this, but I've listened to almost every episode now, and. I just think you do great, and I'm so excited for this journey. I actually got the Borderline Personality Workbook um, from Dr. Daniel Fox, and I've been working on that, and it's amazing, and I just really wanted to say thank you because you did this. You changed my life, and now it's in my hands, and I'm just so grateful and thankful for you. So thank you so much.
0: Well, Elise... When I listened to this voicemail, I'm not going to lie, I got a little bit teary, and you finished off by saying that I changed your life, but I want you to know that you changed your life, and as I say all the time on the podcast, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, and teachers have appeared in various forms in my own life, podcast hosts, authors, mostly authors of books, and big shout out to Dr. Fox. (laughs) I'm so glad you got his BPD workbook. He is an incredible human being, and he's one of the teachers that appeared in my path. So I want to let you know how honored I am that the content I make can be part of your recovery journey, but all the changes you're making, you're doing that. And this is some extremely hard work that you're undertaking, and I hope you're just so incredibly proud of yourself. And I love how you found the podcast of searching for sad BPD songs. You know if you listen to the podcast that I call that vibe like the circle jerk of sadness. It's so easy for us to get caught up in scrolling BPD memes and sad songs. And we've got to get out of that circle jerk of sadness if we want to undertake the real introspective and deep inner work that requires us to be really self-aware And it sounds like you are doing that. And I'm so glad that my podcast popped up while you were stuck in the circle jerk of sadness. It's meant to be. So thank you, Elise. And I'm so proud of you. So we're just going to listen to a few more voicemails. The next one is from Kristen.
4: Hi, Molly. My name is Kristen. I'm 36 and I'm calling from North Carolina. I wanted to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for putting yourself out there. I was diagnosed with BBD in February, and I came across your podcast on Audible, and it was the first fucking time that I, so I realized there's someone else in this world that understood what I was going through. I didn't feel alone anymore. And you were so brave for putting yourself out there. And because of your bravery to spread your message and your recovery, I did. I'm doing the same exact thing. You encouraged me to start my own video um, YouTube project. It's called "Who Is Kristen," social experiment on YouTube, and I'm doing the same thing as you. You inspired me to do. I am putting myself out there, connecting, being honest, talking about my recovery no shame just true honesty for myself to grow as a person but also hopefully you can do that i can do the same thing as you did for me i can help other people and connect so thank you so much
0: oh kristen this is so great and so early on in your diagnosis it's so incredibly brave of you to go ahead and put yourself out there and share your story when i picked up the microphone just about a year ago and i had people in my life say are you sure do you want to do that this will follow you forever it's going to be on the internet forever and it's the best decision i ever made so i'm so incredibly proud of you for sharing your story and i hope others can do the same this is exactly why i'm doing what i'm doing which is hopefully that this will catch on like wildfire so i'm wishing you all the best in this new endeavor. The last listener question is from Cheyenne.
5: Hey, Molly. Um, my name is Cheyenne. I am 24. I'm from Virginia. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for all of the hard work that you're putting into this podcast. Um, your book recommendation of healing the shame that binds you literally changed my whole fucking life. Um, I'm doing so much inner child meditation. I was raised in an abusive religious household Um, and God, I didn't even know shame was like a problem (laughs) for me, but it definitely was. And um, that book just changed so much for me. It changed my whole perspective. And yeah, I realized that a lot of my aversion to self-help was actually like deep rooted anti-psychology, religious rhetoric. Um, which is something I'm still working on. But basically, um, I just wanted to say thank you. And if you have any more good resources for inner child and shadow work, um, that would be awesome. So thank you so much for everything that you do. And I hope you have a great day.
0: Cheyenne, thank you so much for this voicemail. I'm so glad to hear that John Bradshaw's book, Healing the Shame That Binds You, was so impactful for you it had a similar impact on me as you know which is why i recommended it if you search john bradshaw on youtube he has there's so many of his old lectures and you can just absorb yourself in all of his work it's pretty old and some of it is so cheesy and cringy just because of like the production quality but the content is just incredible Also, Brene Brown has a ton of valuable work that she's done around shame. So just Google Brene Brown shame. Again, I'm big on going on YouTube and finding all the free resources that you can find there. Also, go into YouTube, everybody, this is to everyone. Just search toxic shame. Another concept that I came across recently that you might find interesting, you and the listeners, is the concept of tribal shame, and it's based on the teachings of Dr. Mario Martinez, and it's definitely a more spiritual concept, but if you look up Dr. Mario Martinez and tribal shame, I think that you will find that to be very interesting too. I plan on doing an episode all about toxic shame and tribal shame and all these concepts, so you can look forward to that in the future. But for now, those are some resources that you can dive into. As it pertains to shadow work, you know, dig into the work of Jungian analysis. So Carl Jung is one of my favorites. Marion Woodman is another prominent Jungian analyst. I'm also a big fan of Marie-Louise von Franz. She is another Swiss psychologist. Her work is very jungian She does a lot of work on the archetypal symbols and fairy tales. And for anyone who's followed me a long time, I'm a really big fan of diving into myth and archetypes and symbolism. And all of these Jungian analysts are really helpful for me in my trauma recovery journey. And I struggle with remembering a lot of skills and this work has allowed me to connect myself to something bigger than me, and that's been healing for me personally. Another resource that has been great is a podcast called This Jungian Life. Check that out. It is an incredible podcast, so so helpful, and they discuss a lot about the shadow, the collective unconscious, so if you geek out on that, check that out. So I hope these resources can be helpful for you. You know, I could go on for days and days and days about recommendations. So I'll leave it there for now. Thank you to all you beautiful human beings who called into the podcast. Like I said, if you'd like to respond to any of the listeners, if you want to share your love for the podcast, or if you have a question, you can go ahead and do that at backfromtheborderline.com slash voicemail. And now what you've been waiting for, my discussion about radically open dialectical behavior therapy and emotional over control with the lovely Larry Dahmer. Okay, everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I'm sitting here with my guest, Larry, but I would like him to introduce himself. So, Larry, if you could introduce yourself to my listeners and tell them a little bit about who you are and what you do.
6: Sure. I'm Larry Dahmer. I'm a psychological associate at Health Sciences North in Sudbury, Ontario, way up in the north of Ontario, four hours north of Toronto. And if you're wondering what a psychological associate is, basically, I don't have a PhD. My wife, jokingly threatened that if I got a PhD then she would divorce me so what what I do have is I have a master's of arts and counseling psychology and then I did four years post master and then did a year of supervised practice and so yeah so I can do everything a psychologist can do and so I work at the mood and anxiety program at health sciences north which is the regional hospital in Sudbury and and so my job there is to assess diagnose and treat people with personality disorders mood disorders post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety disorders. And uh, so in my background prior to doing this in the past two years is I worked in eating disorders at Health Sciences North, but also at a whole patient treatment facility in Port Colborne. So that's a little bit about my background.
0: Wow. Larry, I laughed the listeners didn't see it. I have myself on mute so that I don't interrupt people and disturb them with my laughing. But I laughed when you said that your wife would divorce you if you got a PhD. <laughs> but it sounds like you've done so much incredible work and you have a deep background in psychology. And I'm curious, what made you want to go into the field of psychology? And then uh, it's a two-pronged question. What drew you to specifically working with mood and personality
6: disorders? It's funny because I, I tell lots of people this is that I remember in my first year of college, taking a psychology 101 course and I swore in that course, it was 1991. I would never take a psychology course again. I <laughs> Hated it. Hated it. And here I am like, you know.
0: What did I'm you sorry. hate about it?
6: Oh, I just, I saw zero application to life. Like my mind was like more pragmatic and this has got to make sense. And who cares talking about memory and all that other stuff? How does that matter? And so mm-hmm. I just, I hated it. And so how did I get into psychology? It was just I think over time, just listening to people, I've had some really wise people in my journey. I was a late bloomer. I went, did my BSW part time. Oh, sorry. Bachelor's of social work part time. Then did my master's. People were just saying, Hey, if you want to get further in this, get a BSW. If you want to take it up, have more doors open, be more specialized, get a master's. And so it was just listening to people. And then I had Dr. Adele LaFrance Robinson suggest, Hey, joined the college of psychology, uh, psychologists of Ontario. And so it's just listening to people Mm. sometimes sitting on it for a while, not jumping at it right away, but listening to some wise people over the years. So, yeah,
0: I always say on the podcast, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, and I talk a lot about Mm. the hero's journey. I'm a really big Joseph Campbell fan, and I love what you're saying there because sometimes you, I feel like we always end up in places that we just never really expect that we would. And you have to create those moments of stillness to listen to what the next best step is and not react, but just follow the path
6: in so many ways. And Mm -hmm. and it's funny because, so again, we're going to talk a bit about radically open dialectical behavior therapy. And that is one of the sort of the key things is being, when people are over-controlled, their OC being flexible and being open is a really challenging thing. And for people, a person who's OC taking risks and stuff like that is a really scary thing because they're trying to control stuff. And so it's yeah. Being willing to be open and flexible and not necessarily taking it a whole hog or having to do it just because it doesn't mean always doing it, but being open to it and listening to people. Yeah.
0: And that's a beautiful segue into our subject matter, because for the listeners who haven't already heard this episode I did an episode with Dr. Anita Federici, who introduced me to the concept of emotion over control and emotion under control. And for the listeners, if you haven't listened to that episode, I'll be putting that in the episode description because I highly recommend you check that one out before listening to this interview with Larry because it provides a lot of context. And I titled that episode, Larry, from a quote that Dr. Anita said in the episode. And she said, what did she say? It was, uh, I should have written it down, but it was like uh, razor blades on the inside is something Mm -hmm. that she said is what feels like emotion over control. Mm -hmm. And what I've heard more than anything is I started off my page, Larry, talking about BPD because I have BPD traits, but I now have just my The way I view personality disorders and BPD has transformed so much in the last year. I take issue with calling anyone's personality disordered because it or medicalizing the personality because I've seen how much I can transform and how much I've changed in just the last three years. And if I just went strictly by everything I read about BPD, that told me that my personality was fixed and that the best Mm. I could hope for was Remission, which made me feel like my personality was like this cancerous tumor that could always come back and kill me in my future life. I didn't find that helpful. Mm-hmm. And when I, the beauty of me starting out talking strictly about BPD was that I found such a beautiful community of people who
4: mm-hmm. were
0: emotional live wires, as Marsha Linehan says, with people that have no emotional skin. And that resonates with me is I feel everything very deeply and very hard and I personalize everything and I am always overthinking things. And of course, what came up when I looked this all up was quiet BPD, right? Right. We have all these subtypes and that's what I wanted to talk to Anita about. And this is where you come in and then I will stop with my long diatribe is so many people reach out to me. I have quiet BPD, I have quiet BPD. And what I realized by talking to Anita was quiet BPD doesn't really exist. It's not a a formal diagnosis. Who read about, then they identify probably as being someone who's emotionally over control. Can you talk a little bit about what is OC or emotional over control?
6: Yeah. And yeah, it's, (laughs) I could go on and on about, we are going to talk for three hours about this um, (laughs) because I get really excited about it. But when it, So somebody who's emotionally over-controlled. So people who are, as Anita, as Dr. Federici would have said, Anita would have said, is that people who have borderline personality disorder, they've got lots and lots of emotion, have difficulties with impulse regulation. And then to regulate the impulses, they do unhealthy behaviors to help manage that. And people who are over-controlled are at the opposite end, in a sense, at the opposite end of the personality spectrum, right? So there are people who Tom Lynch would say, who's the developer of RODBT, who'd say they've got too much of a good thing. And Mm so if we think about people whose personality is like really perfectionistic, really detail-oriented, the people who are, like I often think about if I'm I'm going in for heart surgery or brain surgery, I want somebody who's going to be over-controlled because they're going to pay attention to not just banging around in my head or doing this, that, or the other thing to my heart. They're going to make sure it's done right and it's going to be done well. They're not going to be leaving instruments in, in my body that's got to <laughs> come up later and so those so somebody who's over controlled it's a really good thing tom would say that's what got us to the moon the problem is that when people are too over controlled they are too rigid in their beliefs they're too perfectionistic they're too needing to be too structured they are needing they're not flexible they're not open in RODBT, then uh would propose proposes that when people are OC, over-controlled, they got too much of a good thing. Then it leads to emotional loneliness. It's disconnection. It's not a, able to be vulnerable with other people, Being having aloof and distant relationships. And so they might have lots and lots of friends. Like So for example, using myself as an example, I know lots of people. I'm a friendly guy. I like people. But my wife, again, would say, Larry, who really knows you? Because again, if I'm over-controlled, I don't I won't be vulnerable with people, and so that's what happens. That's where it it gets um, people who are over controlled into trouble. Is that they've got too much of a good thing, and it leads to emotional willingness, Then, of course, mental illness like increased depression, increased anxiety, eating disorders, etc., cetera, etc., come cetera, into play. So, does that make sense?
0: it makes so much sense i should have forced my partner zaz to come and be my co-presenter on this interview because he's classic oc like and i'm definitely i think anita and i got into this where society has forced me into an oce box but right. i am my bio temperament is under control i will tell a stranger my deepest darkest secrets and right. zaz for example my partner is exactly as you described where he we were just talking a coffee this morning and he was describing his perfect life where he said i love traveling because he's i love being a nomadic person because i could get on a plane and i love meeting someone in an airport bar hearing all about their life and then never having to see them again that's what he described and i thought to myself like That is such a classic OC thing because I can have a good night, like really meet somebody and he loves to hear other people's stories and he genuinely loves that. And he's so good at connecting to other people, but you only a very few people like me and his mom probably know his deep, dark fears. And it took me a long time to get to that. Yeah, Is that kind of how you would describe someone that's OC?
6: Yeah. yeah, and that's it exactly. And oh, you said something. So yes, that would be an OC. Oh, that's where I was going with it. So mm-hmm. just because somebody is on that end of the personality spectrum isn't always problematic. So people can be OC, but the difference is how does that, it does their over-controlled traits negatively impact relationships?
0: And the beauty of eyes is he's OC and he is in that like, He understands dialectics. He knows when it gets too far to where he's too isolated. I consider Zaz to be a very balanced individual. He's by no means perfect, but he, when he knows how to self-regulate, that's something that is a massive difference between me and Zaz as he grew up around Buddhist monks staying in his house. I've talked about this on the podcast. He was very blessed to have a really rich spiritual life of all exposed to all these different spiritual traditions. But he was from a very young age, nurtured into a contemplative state and knowing that his emotions rise and fall and not Mm -hmm. to act on things and think about things. And that was a very foreign concept to me growing up in a very emotionally volatile environment. Mm -hmm. And I, I love the way you describe that. So how could someone know Larry, if they are, it's okay. We've already described that if you're emotionally over-controlled, that's fine. Everybody Mm -hmm. has a different bio-temperament, but how does, how would someone maybe identify if they're, what does it look like rather when OC, emotional over-control starts to negatively impact life and relationships?
6: Yeah. And I think there's different facets to this. So When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, here's one of the contrasts as well for the difference between radically open dialectic behavior therapy and dialectical behavior therapy
4: Mm
6: -hmm. is, so there's the neurobiosocial or the biosocial model in DBT. And so in RODBT, then there's also the neurobiosocial model and it's this collection of, so there's the wiring somebody has, so there's high attention to detail there's low sensitivity. And what I mean by that is, so again, I got a feeling you and I are going to be using our
0: spouses
6: (laughs) as examples. They're a good measuring stick. Yeah. So my wife for a couple of years ago, like I bugged my wife about getting a fat bike. That's the bike that has really big tires. You can ride in the snow, et cetera, et cetera. So Mm -hmm. she set it up and got me a fat bike for Christmas and was a complete surprise to me but it was funny. She had it hidden at somebody's place and we go over there and she opens the door and she goes, Merry Christmas. And there's a bike. And I was shocked and stunned, but my reaction as she would describe it was underwhelming. And she was uh-huh. almost like, well, did you really like that? And I was going like, yeah, I do. And so since then it's like, oh, this is the greatest thing, et cetera, et cetera. But there's, it takes a lot to get a, per, a person who's OC really excited. So uh-huh. I, there's high threat sensitivity. So you are talking about People who are under regulated, picking up on stuff from the environment. So do people who are OC, they're going to be highly threat sensitive. They're looking for potential danger and a huge sense of high inhibitory control. So I remember one client talking about how they had trained for months and months to do a marathon and I don't know, 40 kilometers into it, doesn't the person get a stress fracture, but because they had said that they're going to do this they were going to finish the thing, the, the marathon. So doesn't she finish the 2.2 kilometers with a stress fracture, almost passed out from the pain. Just this incredible high inhibitory control. That's why people who have anorexia, for example, are on that end of the personality spectrum. So there's this wiring aspect of things. And then people who are OC, if they grow up, if they're in, in grow up in an environment or are in an environment that's reinforcing it, right? So don't be vulnerable, don't show any weakness, win at all costs, don't make any mistakes, gets reinforced by the environment. And then the way to cope with things is mask your feelings. Don't be vulnerable. Avoid taking risks. That doesn't mean that people who are OC don't take risks. So A person who is OC will take calculated risks. So they will, if they're going to go parachuting, they will parachute, but they will check to see what's the safety record on the place. How high are they going up? What parachute are we using? What's the safety record of the guy who I'm going to be jumping with, et cetera, et cetera. And and then there's this compulsive striving. And one of the things we talk about in in, in the treatment is the OC model, the over-controlled model is when in doubt, try harder, (laughs) be more productive, you know, just go harder. You must be doing something wrong.
0: Wow. That is, there's so much good there. And I think a great way to like further help clarify this for the listeners is you mentioned that classic, I don't know if I'm phrasing this right, you might have to correct me, but classic or standard DBT is usually recommended. And for listeners, DBT being dialectical behavior therapy, if you're a long-term listener, you know this stuff, but I'm just clarifying if this is the first time someone's tuning in. Classic DBT is usually what's recommended for people um, who are emotionally under control. And I think, Larry, Anita said some incredibly startling statistic that I can't call up now, but just she was remarking on how many people were probably misdiagnosed with BPD who are actually, so often you'll find, and I've heard from listener upon listener saying, I went to dbt and it didn't help me at all or i don't know if i actually have bpd but we find so many people they larry they look up the symptoms of bpd yep. and this is my theory things like wondering if there's any point in being alive mm-hmm. feeling empty mm-hmm. feeling these deep existential thoughts loneliness abandonment feelings i would say so many people can relate mm-hmm. to that yeah. and not only that If you're looking at it from a trauma-informed lens, sometimes these symptoms are a very natural reaction Mm -hmm. to serious trauma and then telling someone that their personality is disordered because of that rather than saying, hey, wow, what have you gone through? And wow, this is a very natural way for you to feel that's what they need to hear, not your personality is disordered. And so I think a lot of people who suffer with serious trauma are thrown into DBT programs and they're going like, this is not me. It's it's not helping the issue. And so that's one aspect of it. But then there are all these people who, for example, I know a very close friend of mine, Larry, she's definitely OC, but, and she had a recent attempt, a suicide attempt and she's currently in a DBT group and thankfully she was really blessed to have a very supportive family who got her into an adherent DBT program mm-hmm. but she's classic OC mm-hmm. so what happens Larry when someone who is emotionally overcontrolled and potentially misdiagnosed as BPD gets put into a classic DBT group what are some things that may not help them? Why might someone who's not supposed to be in DBT? Why might they be going? Why isn't this working for me? What about classic DBT doesn't hit for OC people?
6: It's funny because so I'm going to back up the train just a little bit and then I'll come back to that one. So remind me to come back to what you said Because one of the things I think about is when I think about personality disorders and I think about the connection with trauma is that some of the stuff i read and i can't quote you who said it but it's almost like when people experience trauma it w- can or will exacerbate certain aspects of a person's personality and so of course we call that a personality disorder so if a person is if a person's already wired to be like on that oc end of the personality spectrum and then they experience a trauma or traumas complex ptsd for example what can happen is that the person is just going to try harder to not piss off the parent who is being physically abusive. So they're going to set a whole bunch of rules into place that, or they're just going to try to try harder to not be the center of attention or like to not bring it on, or I've just got to try harder. And so it exacerbates this aspect of their personality. And then of course, that person continues to live by that aspect, but 20 or 30 years later, 40 right. years later, it's not functional anymore. And, and so if somebody gets may, gets diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. So if you look at the DSM criteria, diagnostic and statistical manual, when looking at purely at the symptoms, yeah, it looks like borderline personality disorder. So as somebody who has, before I knew about R, RODBT and OC, I would diagnose somebody as borderline personality disorder, but it didn't fit right for a couple of reasons. So the one of the differences between somebody who is OC and somebody who is borderline is that so let's say that the person who is OC goes off to do dialectic behavior therapy they're Mm -hmm. going to be this person who's going to be doing all the skills doing the homework they're going to be filling out the diary cards all of those things they're going to be doing the work Mm -hmm. because that's what you do even if you hate it or this is useless that's my friend she loves homework she loves homework yeah but it doesn't do anything and so that's what I see so I'm going to dip out of this for a second and come back into it. So that's one of the other things where RODBT is helpful for people with chronic depression, treatment, resistant anxiety. They People will come to our cognitive behavioral therapy groups, do all 12 or 16 sessions. They do the thought records. They do all the homework. And at the end of they go, yeah, well, that was okay. Yeah, But I don't My depression still there. My anxiety is still there. And so for me, those are some markers to, for when a person needs uh, RODBT. So going back to DBT, welcome to my ADD brain.
0: <laughs> it's fine. We're perfect twins for that. There we go.
6: <laughs> so the difference between somebody who is borderline personality disordered and somebody who's OC is a person who is overcontrolled can still be suicidal, can still be self-harming, still have some of those traits, but the function of it is different. So when somebody is the borderline personality disordered has the traits or whatever the function of the self-harm is to numb out from emotion is to help regulate the emotion for somebody who is over-controlled the self-harm is i'm doing it because i deserve punishment i i deserve to hurt because i've i'm not perfect i've done something wrong somebody who is suicidal is when somebody is borderline personality disorder they have borderline personality disorder the f- suicide is I don't see any way out of this, et cetera, et cetera. I, I need this pain to end versus somebody who's over-controlled is doing it because again, the world would be better a place without me because I'm tainted, shameful. So I've literally heard people say somebody else could use the oxygen more than I could, like they could. Use. Yeah. And it's, it's tragic. So sad. It's sad. Yeah. Yeah. And so it can look the same. And one of the things that, mixes it it's up. It's like
0: core content, isn't it? That's what's yeah. coming up for me is right. It's like the concept of core content where it's abandonment or something. You could see someone reacting the same way of don't leave me, but what's underneath that. And that's a beaut- what you just said is so helpful for my listeners because, and that's why it's just so important to be able to speak about chronic suicidal ideation with your therapist, rather okay. than just having, I had an incredible, my friend who's become a good friend of mine, Catherine, she has an amazing BPD educational account. She's a therapist herself. And she's just talking about how scared people are to talk about their suicidal thoughts and mm-hmm. therapy because they think someone's just, the therapist just gonna wanna do the CYA method, as we say, cover your ass, mm-hmm. call them in and commit them. But to your point, not often people aren't ready to just do it they're having these thoughts and it's so important to be able to a know you're not alone so mm-hmm. many people feel this way mm-hmm. and you're not broken but also to dive with someone like yourself underneath the hood and figure out what's under there what is causing these thoughts and you saying that the oc person is thinking i want to punish myself i don't deserve to be alive and the under control person is more just this is too much it hurts too bad I want to make it go away
6: yeah and that's the thing that's scary about a person who's over controlled and suicidal is they're going to plan it they're going to plan it in such a way that it's going to work because it's got to be effective and they're not going to tell anybody so somebody who is under control is, is you can see it versus I've had clients who have been suicidal and you can't tell if they're suicidal or if they're having a fantastic day because the facial expression looks exactly the same.
0: Larry, I just read a post on Reddit the other day and I do a lot of research on Reddit because there's just some really beautiful things to be found there. There's some really not beautiful things to be found there, but some people really, you can really, it's a depth of human experience there. People go and post on these subreddits and a girl posted on one of the BPD subreddits and said that she had, was planning to kill herself and she didn't it was a story of her healing she was it was a beautiful story because she said she didn't end up going through with it but now that you're saying this i'm like this girl probably didn't have bpd because she sounded so oc of how you're describing it she said I had a perfect plan. I made, I knew that I was going to kill myself. And I, I said, I was going to do it at the end of the summer. And Mm -hmm. so I planned out all these amazing trips. I wanted all my family members to have beautiful memories of me before. And Mm -hmm. no one ever knew I was meeting with everybody. I I spent all this time with my friends and she's, I, and I was so at calm with my decision because I had planned out every single step. And Then she described that she had a spiritual experience and she ended up finding the right book at the right time, which as we described at the top of this podcast, that was my experience. Like just the right resources fell into my lap at the right time. And that was her description. And of course she told a beautiful story of recovery, but that's it. She had planned it out so well.
6: Yep. Yeah. And that's the scary part. And they're not going to tell anybody. And, wow. Uh, and they're not going to be vulnerable with it because if I tell people. Yeah. Then- she
0: had said, by the way, to to cut, just sorry to cut you yeah. off. She had said in the post, she said, when I told all my friends, like after the fact, after she was better, she said that whole summer I was planning and they were like, what? We had yeah. no idea that you were even sad.
6: Yeah. Yeah and they don't want to be the center of attention they don't want the hullabaloo of all the mm-hmm. you know people freaking out or whatever and there's wow. a whole there's a whole lot of scary things that go along with it
0: wow and larry i'm going to tell this story i actually haven't even told this on the podcast but i know that my grandfather was oc right. so i'm going to put definitely a trigger warning on this episode but my grandfather he Got, he was a very fiercely independent guy he was skiing up until he was 80 he was living, helped people an active member of his church and he ended up we had to my parent my mom had to make the very tough decision he couldn't live on his own anymore
5: mm-hmm.
0: He ended up leaving the nursing home he wrote a letter and said I don't want anybody to have I don't want my money going to this nursing home and my grandfather ended up taking his own life and he planned it all out. And it was a really traumatic thing for my family, mm. but now, looking back on it, it's like that's classic OC, right? Mm. Like he he made a plan, he had it all justified, and he didn't want his money being wasted for people taking care of him. He wanted to leave all his money to his. Family. He felt like a burden to
6: people yeah. and yeah, and it's stories like that are like tragic because yes. yeah, and what makes me think of is that, Again, there's one of the differences is that stereotypically quotations in the air, uh, that when people have borderline personality disorder, some of the stuff I've read is that the traits of it tend to wane off in middle adulthood. I've read that too. Yeah, okay. So we're on the same page. Gets pace. better
0: with age, right? Like
6: <laughs> Yeah, exactly, because people learn, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. The dangerous part of when people are overcontrolled is it actually gets reinforced. So, mm. when people, so in probably I'm guessing in your grandfather's generation being independent, autonomous, not having to lean on. Especially as
0: a man, he grew up in a farm in Kansas. And it was like, you don't show your emotions. And he was raised by like Polish German immigrants. Don't show your emotions.
6: Yeah. I remember watching Monday night football, I don't know, 20 years ago, Brett Favre on the day that his father died was being celebrated by the broadcaster saying, Oh, this guy's, he's going out with his team and no, Brad Fire should have been at home with his family, yes. mourning the loss of it. But it gets celebrated, and so the OC stuff gets when somebody is in their 70s or 80s, they live on their own, they're independent, they're able to do it, great. But yeah. they don't, uh, they won't ask for help, and then problems happen. And being the, being fiercely overcontrolled, independent, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, gets reinforced by our society, and so it Ugh. actually can get worse as age goes on.
0: Larry Anita mentioned something in our interview as well that I think will resonate with you. She was just saying exactly what you're saying, that people that are OC, it's and people that are under control like me, they learn very quickly that showing your emotions and being vulnerable, not okay. So you need to force yourself into this OC mold. And I'm very convinced that much of my psychological suffering I experienced was seeing like the way you are drama queen, wanting to talk about your feelings. You, I don't fit into that subservient, good girl, quiet girl mold. And I really believe when there's this disjointedness between how you feel you really want to be and the box you're being shoved into, that creates psychological suffering. And I truly believe in my heart, that is whatever is out there telling us like, you're not living in alignment with your truth. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you this depression and this anxiety to push you to show you that like, you're not living in alignment. And I think that what you're describing, isn't it? So our society praising over control Mm -hmm. is so bad on for OC people and for Right. under controlled people in such, in such very different ways.
6: Yeah. And, and for somebody who is emotionally dysregulated, it's mm. invalidating, right? So that's one yes. of the things that goes along with invalidating it. And you shouldn't be feeling that way. You've Molly, you feel too much, you know, shut yeah. that down. <laughs> right? Yes, and, and that's where, when somebody who is OC goes to a DBT skills class, I don't think, I don't think the skills are harmful. Like for myself, I read the skills and I go, these are there's some great stuff in there. Anybody everyone
0: do- on earth should have to do. D- I feel like DBT
6: yeah. should be in elementary schools. The problem is that better than algebra. <laughs> <laughs> way better than algebra. Just
0: the same.
6: So the problem is that people who are OC already are like got way too much control on it already. They so mm. DBT teaches people to put a lid on it. To degree right so not that you know, so- the
0: last thing they need is more lids <laughs>
6: <laughs> so it's to help them regulate the emotion not acting impulsively and stuff like that which is what gets them in trouble right. versus with people who are oc they got a part of what rodbt then is about hey learning that not everything is serious not everything is a crisis to loosen up a little bit to engage in novel behavior to engage in non-productivity because that's somebody you know yes. get, always gotta be i'm i'm the guy who I'll be sitting here with my wife, Kathy, and we'll be watching a movie and I'm going to pause the movie for a second. I gotta go do the laundry. i got to you know, do this. And it drives her batty because I have this internal thing that I've got to be productive. Right. And that's an OC thing. Always got to be productive. Mm. Everything's got to be meaningful. I was talking in our skills class this morning. Somebody was talking about the inability to be able to take weekends off and to take vacation because always got to be doing something that's meaningful. And meanwhile, what we really need to do is to sometimes learn to rest and relax. That
0: is such a deep something. I think that's for under control and over controlled people is, again, it's one of those societal things. It's rest is demonized. And if you don't create moments for silence, how can you even self-reflect and self-correct? right? And I feel like We as a society too, and especially with the younger generations like millennials and Gen Z, we have grown up with phones in our hands where my partner has pointed it out to me before where he goes, you're constantly either listening to a podcast or watching a YouTube video or, and I would always have sounds on in the background, Larry, or something going. And I- never really realized. And this comes from a very young age. My mom and dad will tell you that I always wanted a book on tape playing when I was little. I I listened to Harry Potter tapes. I would wear tapes out and I would go to sleep and have my parents flip them over. But I remember it's my parents laugh. But now when I look back, I actually am very sad for that little child, because from a very young age, I was terrified of my own thoughts Mm. and I had big existential questions as a child, which my parents would always say, like, why are you thinking about that? Don't think Mm -hmm. about that stuff. And I carried that on into adulthood. And I think so many people can relate to that. I've always got something playing. I'm always listening to content. I've always, or I'm focusing on self-improvement. But if you don't create time and space for silence, that's the thing that is actually going to heal the most and i feel isn't that a p- big part this is a good segue too like first what's your reaction to that and then i'd love to talk about how, how does like silence and this reflective aspect tie into rodbt
6: okay yeah so I, the one thing i was thinking about when you were talking about that is is again, we encourage people to engage in novel behavior and so sitting down and reading. And so of course, sitting down and reading a novel, reading something that's absolute brain handy, because it's got to be meaningful. I've got to learn something. And no, (laughs) that's not always, always, right? There's got to be some way to improve. There's got to be some way to be better. And so when it comes to, so one of the differences around when we get into talking about RODBT is that one of the core practices within RODBT is a thing called self-inquiry and what people are part of the mindfulness Mm -hmm. aspect of RODBT is when we notice bodily tension if we find ourselves becoming anxious defensive etc etc is to sit with a self-inquiry journal and ask ourselves questions about that thing and so The OC person wants to find solutions. We've got a problem. We need to find an answer. And so the practice of mindfulness, the practice of self-inquiry within RODBT is actually to not to find an answer, but to find a good question. And when we, we want to lean towards our edge, our personal unknown, there's a great line in one of the skills that we were going through today in lesson 11 in RODBT. And one of the lines is I always it always blows me away i always tell everybody start asterisk it says welcome hopelessness despair and anxiety as teachers and i always go where in the world do we ever hear that line welcome those things and so that aspect of silence you're talking about is when clients find themselves having those experiences to grab their self-inquiry journal and to go and spend of course no more than five minutes you're not writing a 12-page you know, paper that's APA formatted, double-spaced, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? all that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's about having a good question, paying attention to our thoughts, emotions, and sensations, or images that arise as we consider that. And if we find ourselves avoiding, will we go back to that space and ask ourselves a question to bring us back to that edginess? Because we, mm-hmm. there's something there to be learned from the despair, the hopelessness, the anxiety.
0: Yes. Oh, that's so great. I did an episode called The Power of Self-Inquiry, so it's perfect. And I can't say how much that I wrote that quote down to, welcome hopelessness and despair and anxiety as teachers, because I think that so many of us, regardless of our bio temperament, we run away from right. discomfort. And the important part to know is that's how we're wired. Nobody likes to feel discomfort, but the power of being human, right? Is we have this higher consciousness where our animal self wants to go, ah, I don't wanna feel uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but we must rise above that and say, what is this feeling trying to teach me? Mm-hmm. So for me, I just did an episode on boundaries a couple of weeks ago boundaries are a huge issue for me, personal boundaries. And I know that, for example, when someone says, can you meet me tomorrow for coffee? Or my friend Mel, she just had someone ask her, can you perform at X event two days from now? And she's an amazing singer. And she and I were just voice noting about this. And she said, Molly, she's really being hard on herself. She said, is it okay if I say no? And I'm just like, these are these, this anxiety we're feeling. And then of course she did her own work, her own like inner work, this anxiety that often comes up with us within us is a notification from our brain, if you will, to say, set your boundaries. Like you're feeling uncomfortable. That probably means that you aren't wanting to do this. So instead of saying, yes, you can say no, or I'm feeling a supreme depression what is this depression trying to tell me? Maybe I haven't showered or seen another person for three days. It's trying to say you need human connection in some form.
6: It's, yeah. I like our emotional system saying, Hey, Molly, pay attention. And oh, there was something you said that was like, Oh yeah. But anyways, it'll come back. It always <laughs> <does>. <laughs> I'll trust it.
0: Exactly. So the power of self-inquiry is really important. And I'd love to talk more about RODB. So for everyone, we've been talking all about it, but it's radically open dialectical behavior therapy. And you've said it's different than standard DBT. What are the core differences in RODBT? What are the, and I think I wrote down in my question is, I said, what would you say is the core of RODBT? What's the goal? How would you say is like some of the, I'll just stop and let you. I could no, go on and on. I know. Well, what's the point of it? What is? What do you? What would you say to someone if you were just describing? You had to give it in a nutshell to someone.
6: So, the the, the quickest Cole's notes version of it is that it's really to increase a person's openness, right? So openness to mm-hmm. new experiences, being able to be flexible to the demands of what's going on in the environment. So a person who is OC is going to have a lot of difficulty with things like changes in structure or changes in plans and being open rather than being fixed in our thinking, this is the way things are. This is how it is. Is being open to considering, Hey, maybe there's different perspectives at looking at things. So it's about increasing openness is about increasing flexibility when it's called for. And all with the main idea behind the whole thing is to inc- increase connection, emotional connection with somebody else. So you're talking about how your partner has a couple of people, you and his mom, I think, if I remember correctly, Mm. who are people that who know him. And really, that's what we're aiming for in RODBT is, we'll say is like, is to be able to connect with at least one other person who can actually get to know you. Because again, if I'm constantly distant, or not, people don't know who I am, then and I'm not able to talk about what's really going on with me, then I carry that emotional burden with me, that heaviness. And I don't see any way out because I only see one perspective versus when we get talking to other people, we can open up our perspective and we may may not necessarily agree with their opinion, but at least we're talking about it and looking at things from a different way. So that is, if we were to boil it down to three words, openness, flexibility, and connection with emotional connection with other people.
0: That's beautifully put, Larry. And what you mentioned, I think as we know, it's really difficult for people to get into RODBT. I imagine it's even more difficult to find RODBT groups than it is even DBT groups. And that's already so difficult for people to get into, at least here in the States. And I can imagine it's tough in Canada too. Spoken to many of my UK listeners. But what I love about having people like yourself and Anita on the podcast is there's gems that you can take. So even if you can't get into therapy, which was myself a, a year or so ago, I couldn't afford to get into therapy. And My conversations with my friend, Melanie, we met through this podcast and we actually have a voice note pen pal relationship where we voice note each other every day. We talk about the really heavy stuff that's on our mind Mm -hmm. and hearing her perspective on something I'll share like a really hard. And it took me a while to get to this point with her. We've been doing this for eight, nine months now, Mm -hmm. but just saying these dark things that are on my mind are a really hard thing. And then hearing her response it makes me go, oh, I didn't think about it in that way. And it's important to find a safe and validating person, of course, because this could do some damage, but she is extremely reflective and and validating as well. And that has been almost my pen pal relationship with her has been more healing than probably any therapy I've done because Mm -hmm. it has allowed to just be this reflection point and she will very gently call me out on some stuff. It was with my parents. I was stuck in this like really blaming state of mind. And she said, have you ever just thought of forgiving? And I'm like, no. Mm -hmm. And But she planted this seed, not forcing me, but it's these people, if we open ourselves up to a safe other and really just say the things that we're scared to say, you'd be so surprised that either they offer some really good encouragement. They say, me too. Another Mm -hmm. thing is that it's been so healing with my relationship with her. If you open yourself up to someone, sometimes you'll find out they're like, oh my God, I feel like that too.
6: Exactly. Yeah. And and I think that's one of the things that's really cool is because again, when people have mental illness, there's so much shame and stigma attached to it. Is that being able to, one of the people in one of our skills class that just ended, she was like, grieving the fact that on uh, Mondays we get together and I've got people who understand me. We can cut through a lot of this stuff. People know where I'm coming from. and, And there's this connection of, yeah, we're all struggling with this thing. Isn't it cool that we can come learn some skills and grow together and be vulnerable with one another. And that in and of itself is healing. It's always, it's such a huge blessing for myself, like an honor to be able to Watch people prior to the treatment. Yeah, you know, I can't tell you how many times, Molly, that I've seen people who have done countless cognitive behavioral therapy groups, have done DBT skills groups. Bless their heart. You know, they are doing the best they can and they're still struggling. And it's, it is cool to see them go through the 30 weeks of skills classes and some get augmented with individual therapy. And to see at the end of 30 weeks, to see it, it almost seems like a new person. Like I've had, and I I don't want this to sound melodramatic and it's not about me, but it's cool because I've literally had people, clients saying, I'll try this therapy because if it doesn't work, I can still kill myself at the end of it. I've had people a number of times, had partners who have experienced trauma, sexual abuse, have had eating disorders Mm
4: -hmm. and
6: through doing the work of the skills of practicing, outing themselves to, again, like you're saying to somebody who that they want to have a meaningful relationship with, being able to first, for the first time, talk about this trauma that they've experienced or the, or their struggles and how healing that is in relationships with friends, with their partners, lifelong partners. We're talking like 20, 30 years of marriage and stuff. Like wow. it, is, it is absolutely amazing. Like That's so incredible. incredible. People who have been suicidal for like months or years, like all of a sudden go, I don't have to struggle alone with this. Yes. Like, wow. It is I, hard work. Like yeah. I, I always warn people like this is 30 weeks of treatment. And the feedback I've gotten from clients. So again, this is not my experience. This is people telling me is that RODBT goes deeper than any other treatment they've done. It is hard work, is yep. a lot of homework to do. If you practice the skills, it'll work and it'll be worth at the end of it. You go, that was hard and it was worth every inch of it that's
0: absolutely beautiful
3: yeah what
0: would you say that what are some skills from rodbt that my listeners could start looking into i have so many of my listeners who i know can't afford therapy and they listen to my podcast as well as other mental health podcasts as kind of lifeline what would you Recommend What kind of skills can they look up? What are some core tenants or skills from RODBT that some of them can take with them? Perhaps easier said than, than done. Well,
6: it is because like there are elements to RODBT too, similar to DBT where you're doing the diary card and you, and one of the things that we do with the diary card in RODBT is to pay attention to our social signaling. What are we signaling to some other people? One of the, it was a real eye opener to me was I would be having a conversation with my wife. So I'm pointing to that couch over there because that's where she would sit is on the opposite couch. And she again leans towards the opposite end of the personality spectrum. And so she would say, sometimes she's go, are you listening? Because being OC, I would be listening, but my facial my facial expression, my affect was totally flat. There's this picture from a wedding where the photographer was in behind one of my nephews at his wedding and I was listening intently to the speech and the photographer took the shot over past my nephew and took a picture of me I look great and I was listening but I had this flat affect and you would never know that was was I thinking like just Mm. flat expression and so I never clued into it and so when she would be telling me this really personal stuff I would be listening but my face wasn't my face hadn't caught up yet and it was disturbing to her because the flat face is going, are you listening? Are, are you invalidating what's going on? So in RODBT, we pay attention to what are we socially signaling to other people? We right. talk about the aspect of self-inquiry, of asking ourselves, of being curious, like you would in DBT. I'm having this emotional response. I'm curious about that, right? That's where you be mindful in DBT. And so in RODBT, we're asking ourselves questions and, and inquiring about that. It's about practicing taking small risks, engaging in novel behavior. Mm -hmm. Hey, put your rings on a different finger, something with an opposing hand. It's about practicing outing yourself to somebody who's safe. And you know that, hey, I'm going to try this new skill. It's going to be risky, but I'm going to try sharing just a little bit of personal information. It doesn't have to be a ton, but just a little bit. Rather than automatically shutting down somebody's feedback, being able to sit with it for a second and asking ourselves, Is there aspects of what they're saying that I should adopt or I should like personally? I think people need to learn all 30 skills. Of course, I'm OC. You need the most, you need the best, right?
0: Obviously, it'd be so great if someone could get into the full program. And I think what I'm hearing from you is. Interesting about OC. There's like a, is there, maybe it's called like the big five personality test. And it's like where you have these certain traits and it's, are you low open? It's, it asks if your openness, how is your openness? Are you low open or, and that's coming up for me as you're talking about this. And my, what I want my listeners to sit with is if they are saying like, yes, it sounds like I'm over controlled, is just Meditating on the concept of openness. It's like, how am I being maybe inflexible in this moment? Are there things in your life that you just believe to be a hundred percent true? And there's no way they're not that way. And how can you what how would your life change if you just believed that you don't know anything for sure? Like, how would it, how would your life be if you instead of trying to pretend that everything is okay for once? to say to a person that you trust, you know what? I don't feel okay right now. Yeah. And I and if you feel like you're a burden to someone, I'm an emotional dumper, as I like to say Larry, whereas I will just dump everything and something I've been trying to practice as someone who's under control is asking someone like I'm really struggling right now. Do you have the emotional capacity to talk with me about some really dark heavy stuff mm-hmm. that I'm going through?
5: Mm-hmm. And
0: then that gives the person that emotional consent to say I'm actually in the middle of a project, but I, in five minutes, I can be present with you. And yeah. so if someone's OC, it's like, if you really feel like, I'm sure that whoever in your life, I'm speaking as someone who is with an OC person, if they come into me and say, can I talk to you about some heavies? I'm like, oh my God, yes. Tell me you never talk. So <laughs> tell me everything, please. And so Try that because I guarantee the people in your life that really love you, they're like dying for you to open up to them right. and just ask that if you feel like a burden, do that. Say, do you mind? Do you have some capacity? And I guarantee you're going to get this response of, oh my God, please.
6: And one of the things he made me, made me think about too, is that there's this fantastic line in RODBT and, and Tom Lynch talks about, he says, we don't see the world as it is. We see it as we are saying yeah. yeah it's a great reflecting point and and again that can be an avenue for discussion hey i see it this way how do you see it, it doesn't mean yeah. that we necessarily have to adopt the other person's perspective but it's in the discussion of it of how much in the past bunch of years have we well canada is exactly like the states like carbon copy for in a mm-hmm. lot of ways There's differences mm-hmm. but i but
0: less school shootings yeah I would say less violence, nice access to health care. I would say these are some positives.
6: Those would be some difference. Yeah.
0: You're like, yeah, sorry. I digress again.
6: Yeah. I've been watching a whole lot because a lot of our news covers us and you guys, right? And so we have lost the ability to be in, in Canadian politics and stuff. We've lost the ability to be able to talk with one another and be able to listen to one another. And so we, we can have a different perspective, but I'm not going to throw you under the bus. We're going to talk, we're going to share ideas. Let's think about this thing. Let's Mm. not be so entrenched in whether we are liberal or uh, conservative, whether Republican or Democratic,
0: whether you're right or wrong. Exactly. That's where we get lost is I think I shared something a couple of weeks ago as well. That was, I a meditation for myself or mantra, if you will, whatever you want to describe it as, is releasing the need to be right, be right, right and do the right thing. And right. a lot of times, the right thing is for you. And again, it's, there is no right thing, but it's like the right thing in the moment is often like choosing your own inner peace. It's, is this reaction or is this, is me being so inflexible in this viewpoint? Or is me really believing that I'm such a burden to everyone and I don't deserve love or oxygen or life? Like, really, what's best for myself and for the people I love? Questioning these very hardwired beliefs that we have, and also recognizing that, as you beautifully articulated in the beginning of this interview, is these. Ways that we think are hardwired when we're young to help us survive in our childhood environments, but then they and they're very adaptive, and it's Mm -hmm. amazing that we do that. But Mm -hmm. then when we get outside of that childhood home, that's when people that we meet in our lives start going, "Wait, that's we're rubbing up against them," and they're and we are going, "We're broken." We're no, you just had some shitty software downloaded when you were a kid, and you can unlearn that download. You can. Control-Alt-Delete and re-upload some new programming.
6: Yeah, and and one of the things you were saying made me think about one of the other lessons that we talk about is we also, there's a, a real big emphasis on our valued goals. And so we have clients look at what are their values. And if we're being really rigid, if we say relationships are really important to us, for most people, those are really important, different aspects of relationships. And if I say that, my values are around relationships with my wife, with my kids, with friends, whatever. And yet I'm so rigid and stuck in my way of thinking that regardless of the relationship, I'm not going to listen to them, then there's mm-hmm. this conflict between their values, between our values, my values, and what I'm living in. And so we want to look at those things too. And yeah, and again, that's sometimes where those OC traits can really become problematic. It gets in the way of, of how we want to live. There's that lack of integrity between what we value and how we live. And sometimes yes. values are in clash, clash, right? So I might value setting boundaries for, I might set I might have a, a value of having a good relationship with my, with my when my kids were teens, setting a boundary, but it might clash with, sorry, having a good relationship with them but I might also value not letting them get away with stuff. And so what happens Mm -hmm. when I say a curfew of 12 o'clock and they come home at 1230 or one, right? Do I stick to the rigidness of the boundary or do I stick with the relationship? And so there's this tussle conflict that goes on. Yeah, so being able to acknowledge the conflict doesn't necessarily mean that one is right more than the other, or maybe at one time it's more adaptive one and the other one's more adaptive another time, but being able to allow ourselves to sit with that tension to not necessarily have an answer to sit in the ambiguity of it, the tension, the anxiety, the depression, the despair, etc., and learn from it. What is this telling me?
0: It's so important. And everything you're talking about with the skills that you've mentioned from RODBT, it just seems so heavily weighted on self-inquiry and reflection and also this tuning into your higher self and your intuition and allowing the space for that stuff to come through. And as Marsha Linehan herself is a Zen master. So she is very, she's a practicing Buddhist. And I always ask my guests because I'm just leaning into a kind of a spiritual aspect of this podcast It seems, is there a spiritual aspect to RODBT? Do you find that people that have more of a spiritual grounding tend to flourish in this therapy more? Because I feel like for myself, I consider myself to be someone who is really disconnected from my spiritual self. And I don't consider myself to be aligned with any one religious practice. But I have found as I have dived into theology of all different denominations, and having worked at a drug and alcohol rehab when I was in college and seeing the magic of AA. And and so many people are repelled by Alcoholics Anonymous having this focus on a higher power. And, but I do believe that this contemplation, meditation, and this openness to something to allow, what are your values? It's hard not to make a connection to a sense of spirituality and something that's bigger than yourself what is your reaction
6: to that? Well, I have lots of reactions to it. So <laughs> I like I just wanted to go back to one thing you were saying. So, yes, it is about the self-inquiry. So, one of the key pieces of RODBT is about the self-inquiry. But it doesn't stop there because mm-hmm. for somebody who's OC, they're already probably too introspective and too inward, and so it is very much about then taking that and outing oneself of talking Ah. with somebody about those things. So it takes it to a a different aspect to, to go with the aspect of spirituality. When I think about, when I think about RODBT, a couple of things come up. So DBT has its pieces of its ideology in Buddhism. RODBT has some of its core pieces from, I think it's Malamati Sufism. So it has, like Rumi,
0: right? Rumi was yes, like a yes. Sufi. Yeah, uh, yeah. I really love Rumi.
6: Yeah. And so one of the things, one of the things, again, part of my personal journey is have been, having grown up in a faith community, having been very much part of a faith community. And that's that's been in a lot of ways, my lifeblood. And you're talking about theology, digging into theology and, and beliefs and stuff like that. And in that being able to question or be able to sit with, hang on a second. Do I really believe that this thing has been passed on to me or this belief has been passed on to me and I've adhered to it all these years and trying to, of course, I'm going see. I'm going to try to adhere to it faithfully, et cetera, and almost doing it blindly. But then in the spirit yes. of openness doesn't necessarily mean I throw the whole thing out and question everything, but in the spirit of openness, being able to go, hey, what do I think about this thing? What do I think about mm-hmm. this idea? why am I so dogmatic on this thing and allow and allowing the questions to arise rather than becoming anxious. Oh, I'm losing my faith or whatever. So it's not inherent. Like it's not like AA, right. It's very much part of AA, but it's in, in RODBT, it it is if we want to say spiritual in the sense of we are taking what we're talking about and it is truly about connecting with somebody else. That's, that Mm -hmm. is, it is. So we're not emotionally lonely.
0: I love what you said about outing oneself, because when you think about outing someone, that's the saying like outing your sexuality. But I love the idea of outing yourself of don't keep it inside. See what happens if you just open up a little bit. And if you don't have to say some deep, dark secret, but- there's just very little risk in opening up and saying, I feel really alone right now. You don't have to say a deep, dark secret. Hey, I. you don't have to admit some horrible wrong that you did that could come back and bite you, but to open up and say, I'm feeling really empty and alone right now or overwhelmed and just seeing what the response is of people that love you, especially if you're someone who never opens up. And I think getting that social proof back of someone really responding so openly and warmly to you, it's that, oh, but you have to take that risk. It's scary to do it the first time.
6: And there's one of the skills I often refer to as There's a skill in RODBT, two thirds of the way through, it's called match plus one. And what the idea Mm -hmm. is, there's a thing called the intimacy thermometer, where you look at where the relationship is uh, from zero to 10. Of course, people who are OC love numbers and scales and all this other stuff, being able to chart stuff. And so what people do is they look at where their relationships are and in the relationships that they want to enhance. They look at where they're at and in the relationship, the match plus one part is You match where the other person is sharing, and then you just take it up one level. So one of the things that happens with people who are over controlled is, is, okay, I've listened to this, I've done RODBT, I'm going to go share, I'm going to go tell the Walmart greeter all my deep, dark problems and be vulnerable. Walmart greeter, I feel empty. No that is not what we're saying. And
0: then you're going to get an awkward, potentially awkward response. And then you're going to prove to yourself, this doesn't work. And then you're back to square one.
6: Exactly. Now I feel ashamed and embarrassed because I've Mm overshared. And so what we do is the skill is matching where the person is at in the conversation and just taking it one step. And that's that's one of the skills is so that you're not, the expectation isn't to go and so what them. might
0: that look like, Larry? Can you like role play yourself? Like how would <laughs> might that how might that look in a conversation of kind of taking it one step up?
6: Okay. In in good RODBT practice. Huh, he's got go his, his book,
0: me. everyone. He's Dude, put his glasses I, on. He got his book out. He's let's do this. I
6: tell you, man, we are getting serious here. I, and of course, one of the things I I in being a good little R O D B T therapist is that you don't have to have everything memorized because we're not smuggling in. Hey, I got it. Perfect. You yes. Know, you it too. So I'm actually going to go to the manual. So there's, there is a lesson. So for example, so let's say a level three and four is making mm-hmm. non-emotional disclosures about personal goals, values, politics, parenting, philosophy, and, or making emotional or passionate disclosure, both non-emotional, non-personal topics, world peace, etc.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
6: so we can all do that. I, I value, I don't know, I value honesty. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Sounds yeah. good. So what a level in five and six then would be is revealing private feelings or emotional judgments about personal events or one's true feelings about the boss or coworker and or revealing possibly socially unacceptable opinions judgments or preferences and it might be hey i value honesty and then a five and the other person oh yeah i do too and then it might be ah it really drives me nuts when people aren't honest with me but also man sometimes i i am sometimes i'm not the most honest person and so that might be so that might be leaning a bit further but It's that idea of we're just taking a little step. We're not taking it four steps. Now I'm telling you about all my deep, dark secrets and my vulnerability. And you don't have to
0: go straight to, I'm, wow, I've been thinking about killing myself, right? Right. Like you can say, I've been really struggling. I'm struggling. Empty feelings. Or I'm going through, I'm going through a lot right now. And I'm feeling overwhelmed. Zaz always says to me, I... And I don't want to tell the same stories too much on the podcast because I feel like sometimes I I repeat myself. But there's only so much life experience you have, and I'm like God. I of course I'm going to repeat myself, <laughs> but I, sometimes I've struggled with naming my emotions, and so I tend to say if SAS goes, it's so obvious when I'm not okay because I am not good at I, I'm not like you. I don't have a ever have a flat affect. I'm like. Like I am just freaking out and (laughs) Zaz will say, are you okay? And he is OC. So he's constantly checking his environment. Are you okay? Are you okay? You good? good? Yeah. Yeah." And he'll be like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm fine. And I'm clearly not fine. And so he's not convinced. And so we've had this conversation where I, if I can't name my feeling, I will sometimes just, he's just say you're overwhelmed. Because then at least I know that whatever you're feeling is over the limit. And you're like, it's too much. And I'm much better at doing that. And if I tell him I'm overwhelmed and I just voice it, that's such a freeing feeling. And I'm asking him to practice that too. And he has been us modeling that for each other has been so great because it was hard for him to open up. And I think this is an interesting thought, Larry, is for people that are OC, I know for Zaz. If you have a partner that's under control and yep. really struggling, yep, they often feel like I can't say when I'm feeling. Yep. I've had partners tell me in the past, they're like, Molly, yeah, I'm not going to tell you when I'm struggling because you're barely keeping it together. And so yep. I feel like I need to be the strong one, except people that are, I will say on my side of being the under controlled it's nice to feel to hear from your partner that is that we see as having it all together and not saying anything. It's so freeing to hear like, I'm struggling too. And it's yeah. healing.
6: Yeah. And again, that's the similar conversation that my wife and I have is that again, I had a thought, where did it go? It happens to me all the time, Larry, because you're talking about that. Oh, so because again, I'm OC, if I see Kathy struggling, Then again, because I'm threat sensitive, something's going on with her and I want to fix it really quickly. I want to make it go away because not only is it distressing to her, it's distressing to me. And if it's distressing to me, I want to make it go away because I don't like the feeling. So I've really had to work and continue to have to work hard to Mm -hmm. go there with her and be able to listen and validate. And man, again, i got to practice what I preach here because I can be incredibly invalidating with her. And so I can go there with my clients and, but because I live with her and she's like the most important person in my world that it's, if she's going to have a good day, it's scary. And yeah, yeah. that's exactly, that's a better word. Yeah. yeah. And so, but I've been sitting with it and going and allowing to talk about, Hey, what's really going on. And then like you're saying, for me to, be able to say, yeah, you know what? I had a shitty day too. Yeah. And that
0: feels so good for people like me and your wife that are going like, Oh God, even Larry or even Zaz who have it all together and they're my rock. Like they sometimes feel as out of control as I do. And that's so, such a nice feeling. And it's a bonding moment yes. rather than having someone feel I'm fine. It'll all be okay. Don't worry. It's not that big of a deal. That for someone okay. who's under control is like soul killer.
6: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. Because again, that's one of the things we talk about in an, in RO skills classes that is that being vulnerable is relationship enhancing? But the fear is that yes. if I if I'm struggling, bad things are going to happen, and I'm going to be seen as weak, or or I'm going to be seen as emotionally dysregulated. And so, and it's the opposite. It actually helps to enhance relationships when we talk about our fears and embarrassments and stuff like that. So, and
0: talking through what's like the worst. That's another thing that I always help myself with too, and I always tell my friends where. What's the worst thing that can happen? And going through that, because a lot of times, if I get an email from my boss, that's, hey, can we talk? And there's no context. I literally am like, I'm getting fired. And then if I get fired, we aren't gonna be able to pay our rent and then we're gonna be homeless. But if I stop and I go, Molly, okay, first and foremost, your performance is great. Your last few performance reviews have been amazing. Your boss always sends very short emails from his phone. But even if you get fired today, you have a family that has a home in Wyoming. You're never going to be homeless. You also are very hireable. You can get another job. You're going to be fine. So it's like talking these things. And to put it into context of what we're talking about is if you tell your partner, I'm overwhelmed, what's the worst thing that can happen? It's like, do you really think they're going to say, you're a broken piece of shit? Wow never talk to me about your feelings again. No, they're not going to say that. (laughs) Play out the whole, it really helps me to play out the whole story in my mind, like really play it out. Because if you just go, it's going to be bad. I can't do it. It's like, you can't stop there. Really play it out and see how ridiculous it all sounds. And then you're like, okay, I think I can probably take this risk.
6: Yeah. Yeah. And it helps to become less risk aversive then that it's not so dangerous. Yeah. Exactly.
0: I have taken up an incredible amount of your time, Larry, and it so feel like it. <laughs> it doesn't for me either. I can always go on and on, and but I love to finish up with a few questions about if my listeners have thought, "Oh my gosh, yes, I am OC, and I've thought that I have BPD, and maybe I don't now, and maybe I." And I always tell my listeners, and if you're freaking out, this. I'm like giving you a light slap on the wrist and saying, don't freak out because you are a multifaceted human being. It doesn't matter what diagnosis you have or don't have. But the most important thing is that you get the treatment and the skills that will help you the best. So if my listeners feel like radically open DBT is something that could really help them What is the accessibility of this treatment, Larry? Because from what I understand, it's actually relatively new. And I would imagine it's a little bit difficult to find someone who is. How can my listeners take the first steps in trying to find a RODBT therapist or skills group?
6: If People go to radicallyopen.net. There is a listing of therapists in Canada, the States, in the UK, other places. And so people can just search by geographic area and it'll list the people's specialties and where they're located and stuff. And so that's, and their contact information. So that's probably the best way to radicallyopen.net.
0: That's great. And say, for instance, because we know based upon location, if they go there and they can't find anyone near them, or if they call all of them and there's no way for them to get in, is there, what type of therapists may be good for them that could be, do you know what I'm saying? I'm thinking about like someone who is trauma-informed or someone who practices, what are some schema therapy or EMDR, it's like what are some secondary therapies that play well with RODBTs? Because I'm just trying to, if someone goes into the search and I'm playing out and they go, Oh my God, there's no RODBT near me, what's the second best option? I know that also might be a hard
6: question. And I'm really biased. I know. Um, I I honestly don't know because RODBT is so different
0: mm-hmm. um,
6: in so many different ways. Because
0: here's it, a better question. What therapies should they stay away from? I would imagine like cognitive behavioral therapy might not be great for an OCD or an OC person. What therapies may not be a good fit for someone who's OC?
6: And see, even with that, like there's elements of CBT, of cognitive behavioral therapy, that are good. good. So if we think about, again, the neurobiology, somebody who has OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, they tend to be towards that over-controlled side of the spectrum. And so first line of treatment is things like, cognitive behavioral therapy it's Mm -hmm. least intrusive and and structured and stuff and there is there are those for eating disorders there's like for anorexia there's cognitive behavioral therapy for anorexia and so there is other treatments that people can try there's behavioral therapies for people with autistic spectrum disorder Mm -hmm. and so those are the first lines of defense and so ro is meant for again it's not meant for it is it's meant for people who are chronically depressed treatment resistant anxiety who have the obsessive compulsive personality disorder traits or the disorder itself mm-hmm. it, it's meant for folks in that way and so i honestly don't know the answer to that it's um, fine
0: you don't have to yeah. it's hard i struggle so much for my poor listeners because it is so hard to get into tr- to good mental health treatment and in the United States, I lived for six years in the UK. So I experienced the NHS where there are just all sorts of other bar- barriers where you go into basically a GP, they'll throw you on an antidepressant and then they'll say, okay, you can wait eight months. You're not about to kill yourself. So you'll wait eight months before you can get into a therapist. And it's just all these different barriers, which I can imagine could probably be some of the same barriers in the in Canada. Yeah. But in the United States too, what I've found is that a lot of the therapists that are available for insurance are not the therapists that would probably be as helpful for people. It's just, there's so many barriers, Larry. So I, I just, I always try my best to like squeeze out as much information that they can <laughs> do, they can get, but y'all, it sounds like Hopefully, if someone really is resonating with everything Larry's saying, go to radicallyopen.net, search your geographic area, and see if you can find something. And it's my hope that therapy like this will become more and more readily available and that you'll have taken – there's so much here that you can use in this conversation to get yourself started. Larry, do you have any favorite books that, that you like, that you ever recommend to clients that maybe can help people start to practice more openness and any books that you would recommend to someone who's OC? I
6: don't. Like you said, because like you said, it, it's, it is a, a new novel treatment and it's only been out for, it feels like longer, but it's only been out for four years. But again, if people- Four believe, years. Yeah. it The manuals actually came out in 2018. Wow.
0: Um, yeah. That's incredibly new.
6: It is. And it was research. Tom Lynch in the background stuff talks about how it was, there's 20 years of translational research put into it. So he's really done his background work. He was actually, if I remember correctly, don't quote me on this, but I think Mm. he was one of the people who was working with Marshall Linehan and was going like, okay, yeah, DBT is great. And now there's this other part of the population that's missing. So where I'm going with this is that if people go to, again, radicallyopen.net, There is a bunch of resources on there in terms of research articles, videos, and stuff like that, that people can check out. There's some fantastic blogs by the people who are doing the trainings and stuff like that. They're funny because again, the spirit of RO, not everything has to be serious. And so they're worth checking out. So the whole website is worth checking out.
0: Great. I will link that in the show notes. I'll make sure that everyone has access to it. In closing, Larry, what is next for Larry what's next in the world of Larry your what do you do on your day-to-day you're working with groups now and if for people that are in your area how can they how are you comfortable with people reaching out to you if they would like to connect with you feel free to share as much or as little as you can I don't know how back packed you are in terms of your client load so I just always want to give my guests an opportunity to share that at the end
6: health sciences north is again it's a hospital in Sudbury Ontario and so our catchment area is the greater Sudbury area. So it's Sudbury, Manitoulin. And at the hospital, we're not able to accept clients outside of that catchment. But again, if people are in Ontario, then I can point them to a client or clinicians in the province. But what's next? One of the things that I'm excited about when it comes to RODBT is actually with Dr. Federici and Sharon Zister, who is uh, a social worker down in Toronto. Fundamental in us getting things going in Sudbury is we're actually doing a qualitative quantitative study of RODBT as a trans diagnostic therapy. And we're still gathering data and interviewing patients and stuff. And it's some really cool emerging numbers are coming out of it. Like how it's one thing to hear people's or to hear people's stories and then have the numbers also back it up. It's wow, this is crazy good. So that's one of the things that one of the things I've that's on my radar.
0: That's so exciting. That means maybe in 10 years and maybe I have you back on the podcast and we'll have all this new data that we can talk about. That's the cool part about mental health and psychology now, because I was very much like you, Larry, where I started my LMFT and I just... I hated it. I didn't like my classes. I was very underwhelmed with the discussions that were being had. I just felt like they were very stigmatizing and I just did not like it. And what I'm thriving in this because I get to speak to people like you and Anita and hear about the new things that are coming out and all the therapies that are coming out now. I love how much they really think about people not in diagnostic boxes, it's more about who are you biotemperamentally, what happened to you and ha- what matters to you and can and develop the skills so that you can live a life experienced as worth living for
6: you. Yeah, and in, so the motto in, in DBT is to have a life, to develop a life that's worth living, in RODBC, is to develop a life that's worth sharing.
0: Oh. I love that. Isn't that. cool? I love that. They play so nicely together. Yeah. What, I mean, what better note to leave it on than that, I would say. That's so perfect. Larry, thank you so much for being here. I know that my listeners are going to get so much from this conversation. I'm really honored that you took the time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you well that is it for today's episode everyone thank you so much for being here with me and a huge thank you to larry for providing your insight and your time if you would like to dive even deeper into the concept of radical openness i am going to be unlocking another episode this week for my premium subscribers I know many people don't have access to DBT or RODBT in the area that they are for various reasons being insurance or long waiting lists, so I'm going to do my very best for my premium subscribers to put together as many resources as I can and some research and dive into the concepts that we spoke briefly on with Larry today. So if you'd like to unlock that content, you can go to backfromtheborderline.com, and become a premium subscriber. And with that, I will leave you. This episode has been very long. We are almost at two hours. So I hope you can take what you've learned from mine and Larry's conversation, become more radically open, deepen your relationship with yourself and others, and practice this beautiful embodied sense of self-awareness. I love you so much.